Acts 6, verses 8 to 15. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They then secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witness and testified, this fellow never stops speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth was destroyed the places and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. When the numbers of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open upon and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voice, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And what a story it is. What a story it is to be part of, isn't it? God's never-ending, never-failing, never-giving-up-on-us love story. Just give me a moment while I find, find my notes. So we're continuing on with Acts, and we're up to Acts chapter, well, the end of Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. So Alison read there for us uh, just two little parts from today. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a bit of a problem, uh, I think, in our society where Christians really aren't liked very much by many in the wider culture. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of hostility and suspicion in our culture towards Christians. It's not a new problem, though, is it? And really, it's been a, something that's been happening from the time of Acts, 
until now. And what we see in today's passage is a real pivot point in the book of Acts, and where persecution and hostility towards the gospel, towards followers of the way, takes hold. Now, for us today, we're not threatened with, with death or jail like those early believers were. But the reality is lots of people just don't like Christians. Have you come across that? There's an article that was written recently by Jane Caro, and she's a member of something called the Rationalist Society of Australia, and they don't like Christians very much, the Rationalist Society of Australia. And she wrote this attack piece, and it was actually on school chaplains. And in a wider sense, it attacks any sort of religious education that is publicly funded and really any sort of um, Christian faith. And in this article, she describes chaplains in public schools as an insult. She calls Christianity an arrogant faith. And she says that we Christians regard anyone who values other worldviews as inferior and suspect. And she calls religious education an oxymoron. She says education is meant to teach children how to think, not what to think, and therefore she sees religious education as indoctrination. She says that there's active harm that we do uh, for, for any uh, child struggling with various hot topic identity issues, and I'll, I'll leave you to, to guess what, what she's referring to there, or, or any child dealing with an unwanted pregnancy, and it kind of made me laugh, thinking that she's making it sound like every second grade three child is, is struggling with these sorts of things, which I very much doubt. Um, she says that Australia is a secular nation, and that one of our country's core values is both freedom of religion and freedom from religion. All in all, if you read the whole article, you'd, you'd notice that it's a very loaded, hostile, biased and judgmental opinion piece. So our challenge is, how do we live in this sort of culture as believers? I think the other challenge, though, is perhaps sometimes we need to reflect on how we Christians or the church generally acts in a way that maybe becomes tiresome to culture or even irrelevant to culture. I think sometimes the, the, the wider Christian faith becomes tiresome to culture when we, we push back against this sort of secular opinion with our own forceful, angry, bitter, cynical, judgment, indignant sort of way and, and, and we, we have rallies and protests and angry Facebook rants. Maybe there's insensitive witnessing and evangelism that is kind of more Pharisee and less Jesus. Maybe we try and gain political power for the, the, the Christian cause. That's quite an American thing to do. But, but generally speaking, maybe we're just hostile. Maybe we deserve those sort of rants. Or perhaps on the, on the flip side, maybe we're quite simply just irrelevant to our culture. And if anyone's seen the latest census results, uh, you could conclude that really Christianity is increasingly irrelevant to people in this country. We separate ourselves sometimes from culture, don't we, as believers? 
and, and we end up kind of uh, being a bit of a, a, a lukewarm Christian church. We become, maybe we're inoffensive and harmless and, 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 and happy, but in our kind of holy huddles, we become powerless to impact the world for the kingdom of God. So how, how are we to live? I think Stephen, in this passage, not my husband, although my husband possibly maybe does lead a good example on how we are to live in the wider culture, but today when I say Stephen, I'm referring to Stephen in the book of Acts. Stephen shows us how to live as a believer in a way that I think is neither tiresome nor irrelevant. Does that sound good today? Yeah? We want to live as believers who aren't tiresome nor irrelevant. Neither hostile nor harmless. And in the NIV commentary in Acts, uh, the, uh, the author, Ajeth Fernando, he's a Sri Lankan theologian, he refers to Stephen in this rather interesting, descriptive way. You ready? He calls Stephen a winsome radical. It's interesting, isn't it? A winsome radical. Church, you need to be a winsome radical. We need to be winsome radicals. Anyone here commonly use the word winsome in their vocabulary? Um, I did a Google book search. Peak use of the word winsome was in, at the end of the 1800s. So it's probably been a while since you've, you've commonly used that word. It's an old one. It reminds me a little bit of something from an Enid Blyton book from my childhood. Any Enid Blyton fans here? Yeah. You know, the sort of phrase where, where she'd write, he was a jolly good old chap with a winsome smile. All right, that's the sort of feel it's got, hasn't it? Winsome, it's, it's attractive or appealing in this really fresh, innocent way. It's someone who's generally pleasing and engaging and it's often because of this childlike charm or innocence. Someone who's basically just attractive and charming in a very simple way. Winsome. But Stephen was a winsome radical. So radical is, is the word just means different from the usual or traditional. Someone who's, who's favours the extreme or extreme changes in existing views or habits or conditions or institutions. It's someone who, who is the cause, perhaps, or an example of great change or something that's extreme. So Stephen is a winsome radical. And I think Jesus would tell us that we need to be winsome radicals as well. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, 16 and 17. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. So he warns us, he warns believers that there are going to be difficult times. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be suspicion. People won't like you or your message. And so we are to be both shrewd and innocent, radical and winsome in the way we live out our faith. 
So what is it that makes Stephen a winsome radical? I'll say this. Stephen is full of grace. He's full of power. And he's full of wisdom. If you got that, he's full of grace, power, and wisdom. So let's have a look at Acts chapter 6. And in verse 8, it says this. It says, now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Stephen is a man full of grace. And look, we saw that the last time I preached. He was chosen, wasn't he, as one of the seven who were going to wait on tables and and run the feeding welfare program for the widows. He's one of the seven of good standing. He was liked, he was trusted, he had a good reputation and they knew he would be someone who would care for the needs of vulnerable people. The word grace in Greek is karius and basically means that which gives joy or pleasure, delight, Sweetness, charm, loveliness. It's being full of goodwill and loving kindness and and favour. Sounds a bit like our word winsome, doesn't it? Stephen has a reputation for being someone who's just simply joyful. Is that your reputation? I must admit it's, it's possibly not my reputation sometimes. He's got a reputation for someone who is just sweet and charming. You know those people that you just can't help but like? You know what I mean? They're just so sweet and beautiful and charming. Stephen's full of kindness. He just loves people. He's the sort of person you just can't hate. He's a delight to be around. And he'd do anything for anyone. And he's the guy you put in charge of the welfare program. We need people like that. We need people in our church, in our world, who are just simply kind, who are joyful, who are humble, who are servants, people who are just uncomplicated and they're just full of charm and loveliness, people who are winsome. What a breath of fresh air that would be for our jaded, opinionated, all-about-me, pleasure-seeking, restless culture that we live in. Don't you think that would be just like sweet water in a desert? I'm telling you, people are hungry for grace. Grace is so much more effective at changing minds, changing hearts, changing ways than anger is, than force is, than hostility is. Let me read you a story about Uh, the the impact that living a grace-filled life, living a winsome life, can have on someone. And this comes from Philip Yancey's book, Vanishing Grace. Let me just read you this story. In February 2013, Christianity Today published the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, who described her younger self as a leftist lesbian professor who despised Christians. I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians, she thought, were particularly bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, 
pointless menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies, Butterfield cared deeply about morality, justice and compassion. For guidance, she looked to Freud, Hegel, Marx and Darwin, and not to Jesus, mainly because of his zealous band of warriors. While researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me, she forced herself to read the Bible, the source that, there, that in her opinion, had led so many people off track. She published a critical article in the local newspaper about the organisation Promise Keepers and proceeded to file away the response letters in two boxes, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. One letter, however, fitted neither box. In a kind and inquiring spirit, a Presbyterian pastor from New York encouraged her to explore her conclusions further. How did she arrive at them? On what basis did she decide on her moral convictions? After first throwing the letter away, she later fished it out of the recycling bin and stared at it. Eventually, she accepted the pastor's invitation to dinner and over the next two years became friends with Ken and his wife, Floyd. They entered my world, she recalls. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. Meanwhile, Butterfield continued to read the Bible many times in multiple translations. Finally, she found herself in the pew of that pastor's church, feeling conspicuous with her butch haircut. Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, she said, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. Rosia Butterfield, now herself a pastor's wife, still champions morality, justice and compassion. She came to faith in search of a foundation for which she valued, drawn by the tender care of two Christians who graciously pointed her to that foundation. Grace truly is truly is a powerful thing. So Stephen is full of grace, but he's also full of God's power. And, and really another meaning of the word grace is to say that you are filled with divine capacity and divine ability. The, the two words go hand in hand. And, and so Stephen demonstrated these great wonders and signs among the people. He demonstrated this power through signs and wonders. And so a divine presence of the Holy God was upon him. And in verse 8, if you read it, you'll see that false accusations start kind of flying left, right and centre. And, uh, and, and they're, they're saying that there are all these supposed things that he said, untrue things, because they're trying to destroy him. And then in the midst of all these accusations, in the midst of these people trying to destroy him, uh, his face 
It's shining. It's glowing. Like that of an angel. There's this this manifestation, a physical manifestation of the beauty and the wonder and the glory of heaven upon him. What a beautiful image that is. Stephen is so full of grace and power that, that he literally glows. I mean, is that something to inspire to or what? Like to be so full of God's grace and power that you, you, just, you're glowing with heaven. How beautiful. How, how winsome. What a, what a marvellous gift that would be. To, to bring to hurting and broken people in our world. This, this, this power gift of, of healing of the body. These, these power gifts of healing of the mind and healing of the soul. Church, people need to experience the power of God. They truly do. I mean, our, our, our lovely, winsome, charming smile is one thing, but people need to experience the power of God. Not just the message of the gospel, but the freeing, healing, life-giving, soul-saturating, mind-changing power of the gospel. Is that true? Amen. Do you know that carrying a power like that, it's quite radical. Really, even amongst Christians, it's quite radical to carry and use a power like that. Other Christians might even sort of look at you with suspicion. What do you mean? They they believe in healing? They believe in the gifts for today? What do you mean? Like it's radical. It's not the usual experience of a human being, is it? And, And here's the other thing to be aware of and to be maybe warned about. The powers of darkness do not like it when the children of God live and minister in the power of Jesus. You know, when the, when the snake's head, and, and it wasn't beautiful, we had that story earlier today, when the snake's head is stomped on, the snake rears up and lashes out in response. And in Acts 6, we see, we see this happen. We see the religious, political, human powers and their shadowy supernatural, evil co-conspirators rear up and lash out against Stephen. And a group that belongs to a certain synagogue begin to argue with Stephen. This is verse 10. They're arguing with Stephen, but here's what happens. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So not only is Stephen full of grace and power, what's he full of? Wisdom. He's full of wisdom. And also, if you'll remember from last time, he's chosen as one of the seven because of his wisdom. Now, wisdom is a bit of a, a, bit of a slippery word to define, don't you think? Wisdom. What is that? I would say wisdom is is certainly more than knowledge. 
but it's not less than knowledge. It's not less than knowledge. So, so you need to know stuff, all right, to, to be wise about how to apply it and how to understand what is good. And so what you'll see, if you go home today and read the section in the middle that we didn't read, which was basically all of chapter 7, so you can go home and read chapter 7 today, and what you'll see is that Stephen had a heck of a lot of knowledge. He had a lot of knowledge. He had a solid understanding of Scripture. And so he was... He was gifted, wasn't he, in arguing the truth of Scripture and how it applied to the Jews. And his message, it cuts. It cuts to the heart, straight to the heart of those listening. It's, it's sharply confronting. That's why it's wise. It, 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 it confronts. It's not just knowledge. It's, it's applied knowledge. It's sharp and it's confronting. And he doesn't hold back truth. And I think sometimes we kind of sugarcoat our message a little bit to people because we don't want to offend them. Actually, just today, I, I ducked across to Narendra for church this morning, a bit of fellowship across there. And, and after I'd left church, I, I bumped into someone down the street and had a bit of a chat with this person. And they were sharing a few things about some purchases that they'd made recently. And I, I wonder whether I should have confronted them a little bit about those purchases. I don't know. I was humming knowing whether I was just being judgmental or whether I should have spoken a bit of, bit of hard truth into their life. But I didn't want to offend them. So I kind of held back. I don't know, maybe I did the wrong thing there. Maybe I was trying to be too winsome and not radical enough. I don't know. But um, Stephen doesn't hold back the truth or try and sugarcoat his message. It's a wisdom that they just can't argue against either because it comes from God. And what it does is it shines this bright floodlight. You know how a, a bright, you know when you're in darkness and then suddenly the lights turn on and it, and it hurts, it hurts your eyes. You're, you're like, get away from me. That's kind of what's happening here. He is speaking this message of light and it is such a contrast to the darkness that they've been living in that it hurts and it makes them squirm and um, they don't like it but it's a wisdom that they can't argue against because it comes from God. And, and it shines a light into their broken condition and it calls them to turn away, to repent from their broken ways and to turn back to God. And really, don't we all need to hear that message kind of regularly? Whoa, hold up there. You're going the wrong way. Come on, face back towards me. This way, this way. That's wisdom, that's wisdom. It highlights the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, desirable and undesirable. And then it challenges us to choose God's way and to live accordingly. Church, we've, we've got to be more than just nice people in this world. We, we, if we're simply winsome, with no power, with no wisdom, there will be little impact on our world and our census results will continue to show that. Hugging people and smiling at them as they jump off a cliff really is not very loving, is it? Wisdom, wisdom's radical. Radical, remember our definition of radical? 
favouring extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions or institutions. People don't generally like radical because it's confronting. Wisdom is confronting. People generally, I don't know, if you notice this, people generally don't like to be told that they're living the wrong way. I don't know, any of you, anyone here love someone to rock up to and say, you are living the wrong way. I point at my husband because that's safe. I won't point at anyone else here. You're living the wrong way. You're not, by the way. People generally don't like to be told that they need to change. And the Bible tells us to change and to live God's way. And so if we get out and tell someone that, they say, you radical, fundamentalist, extremist. In Stephen's case, the leaders become enraged. And there's this amazing image there of them grinding their teeth at him, kind of like a wild dog, snarling, foaming at the mouth. Their anger is unrestrained and they drag him out and they stone him to death. Church, it's radical to have scripture as our source of authority and to use it to bring conviction to a sin-filled world and it got Stephen stoned. So for us, living as someone who radically believes and follows and champions the authority of Scripture, it will cause some kickback in your life. Now, in this country, you're not going to get stoned, although there are countries in the world where you would. But you'll hear critical media reports. There'll be outspoken atheists who write books condemning your faith. Your peers might make belittling comments about you you might always feel like a bit of an outsider. Politicians will make laws that that you disagree with or that restrict you in some way. There is a cost. There is a cost to living as a radical. And it could well be a mighty cost. You've been warned. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to take that cost? You know, when faced with this cost, some believers become cynical. When faced with kickback, some believers get offended and angry or depressed or judgmental um, and in doing so become quite hypocritical. And so some believers hold on to the radical, we're right, but lose their winsome. However, let's look at Stephen when he was faced with the cost of being a radical. What do we see? We see his winsomeness on display. Why don't you have a look at Acts 7 with me, 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the right hand and the son of man standing at the right hand of god at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they rushed at him dragging him out of the city and began to stone him meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named saul while they were stoning him stephen prayed lord jesus receive my spirit then he fell on his knees and he cried out lord do not hold this sin against them When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
In the midst of all this, Stephen sees heaven, the glory and wonder of, of God. He sees Jesus, and there's just this, this innocent beauty here. As Stephen's been stoned to death, he's, I mean, he's marveling at the wonders of, of God. He's wonderstruck. I mean, that's amazing. Stoned to death, worshipping Jesus. He's humble, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's forgiving, and he, and he prays for those people who are doing this to him. I, I, I don't know, could we do that? His desire is they won't be condemned for it. He's not angry with them, he's full of grace and compassion. We truly see here in Stephen a man who is a winsome radical and, and oh, oh, that we would be the same. Oh, that we would be the same. You know, without grace, we're just radical. Without power, we're just winsome. But it takes wisdom to be both. So as I finish, I just want to throw out you a few simple ways that we can be winsome like Stephen. Do you, do you want to be winsome like Stephen? I don't know. I do. It's up to you. <laughs> now, these, these are some things that if you are a winsome radical, if you're a winsome radical, you'll probably already be doing this. If you think you want to grow in this way, here's some things that will grow this in you, all right? So they're things that you'll already be doing if you're a winsome radical, but they're things that you can also do to become a winsome radical. It's really a win-win, isn't it? So here is what we can do. Care for needy people. Care for vulnerable people in practical ways. Spend time with them. Cook a meal, help them with something they can't do on their own. To serve people who are needy and vulnerable. That's what Stephen did. That's what he did. Second thing you can do is you can change atmospheres. And, and what I mean by that is be the one that carries the half full glass into situations. All right, you got that? Be the one that's carrying that half full glass. You know, you can bring a glass full of grumpy and cynicism and, and I must say I'm, you know, on the odd occasion, a bit partial to a glass of grumpy, all right? But, but don't, don't, don't carry the glass of grumpy. Bring the glass half full of joy into situations. Bring that, that glass half full of hope into your workplace, into your social group, into your family, into, into your, your friendships. Bring the presence and the power of Jesus. That's winsome, but it's also radical. Next thing, simplify your life so that you have time to be filled and recharged in God's presence. Do you know this? Everything you say yes to is a no to something else. Do you realise that? If you say yes to this, it's a no to something else in your life. Um, so be wise. The radical believer is going to say no to many things that the world thinks is good and essential. You can't just keep jamming more stuff into your life. We must choose. So the challenge is, what do you need to say no to? What do you need to part with 
in order to live radically for Jesus. Next one, you, you will read the Bible and you'll actually apply it to your life. It's one thing to read it, another thing to apply it, isn't it? Um, a wise person is going to take God's word and is going to learn how to let it permeate their life, learn how to let it shape the way you think and, and the way you live, and then you're going to speak this into your family's life and into your friend's life and into your workplace, okay? So study your Bible. Get the word of God into you. And, and there's all sorts of ways you can do that. Read Christian authors. Listen to Christian podcasts. Read Christian stories to your, to your kids. Hey, budding preacher we've got here. Love it. Love it. Um, you know, just, just in whatever way you're wired, get scripture into you, okay? Look for fresh ways to feed your soul. You know, just a secret between you, me, and whoever happens to listen to the podcast. Sometimes I get really sick of reading my Bible. <sighs> do my daily devotional. Yeah, I'm bored. I don't know. It's not just me, is it? Come on. We're all friends here. Anyone else? Okay. You know, I've got my journaling Bible there, and I was like, oh, I've read that before. I'm bored. No one's recording this, are they? <laughs> so do you know what I do? I shake it up a bit for myself. I find a different translation. I find something else. And what I'm on at the moment is N.T. Wright, and he has his own little fresh translation and his own little commentary. And he's, he's different in the way he, he writes and thinks and he's very real and, 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 and it's very life-giving. And so I don't just toss my Bible because I can't be bothered and I'm bored with it. I, I freshen it up for myself. I find some other way to capture my heart and feed my soul. And I think that's possibly what some of us here need to do. You just need to find some other way to freshen things up for you. Now, you might think that that list of stuff I've just given you is a bit hard to do on your own. Do you know what? You're probably right. And that's why we do it together, don't we? That's why we're the church. That's why we gather as the church. You know, you're not alone in this stuff. This is is the important part of being church together. We help each other to live like this. And, And so... Come to our mission.all meeting. Come to our mission.all meeting, our planning meeting, and, and let's talk about how we can apply this stuff together, how we can be winsome radicals living this life together. Let me pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for the, the, the heart, the grace, the love, the joy that exists in this church Father, I just pray that you would continue to stir us to be winsome radicals. Lord, I just give thanks for the the children and the young people in our congregation. And Father, as they sit here under the word, even though they mightn't understand much of it, Holy Spirit, would you just come and just reveal Jesus to them? Would they be growing in faith and love and, and, and good works? We thank you, Lord, that as we gather together, we can encourage and support um, one another from the youngest to the oldest. And so, Father, as we fellowship together now, would you just um, really bring a, a sweetness of joy to our fellowship? Would you give us uh, words of encouragement or um, uh, words of, that, 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 that are timely and right for one another? And so we just thank you that we are your church, your people here together on mission. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.